Hello, welcome to Delta Dispatches. This is Jacques Bear. I'm and, just oh, ah, and ah, I was eager. Sorry. Well, you and I'm Samoma Laws. What are we discussing? Um, Delta Dispatches, people, coast, wildlife, and why it matters. Why restoring it matters. matters. All right. <laughs> um, so it's good to be back uh, another week with you all. Of course, our thoughts are with our neighbors in Texas, with Hurricane, well, eventually Hurricane Harvey approaching. They always have this, you know, I know they have the names list for the mm-hmm. hurricanes, but Harvey, you know, yeah. all of a sudden, you know, trending on Twitter, everybody's talking about it, certainly um, has grown in intensity. And so we're thinking about our neighbors in Texas who might, you know, have 30 inches or so of rain. Yeah, it's, I mean, just strengthened really quickly. And, you know, of course, we're not necessarily fully out of, of the, the no, clear no, here in yeah. Louisiana. So it's important to stay vigilant and stay prepared. We've covered this on a previous yeah, episode. Some, some mm-hmm. great discussions about don't panic, right? But be prepared, get your um, get your plan in mm-hmm. order, and at least monitor the situation and, and be aware of it. Right. So, and you can go actually, if you don't have your, you know, evacuate evacuation emergency plans, to get a gameplan.org and there are a ton of resources there about you know just checklist what do you need in case of an evacuation or an emergency um so again now is the time to prepare not panic and you know hopefully you'll be prepared for nothing yeah yeah and and we are no strangers to water right uh, mm-hmm. good or bad but today we're going to talk about sediment yeah sediment so the sands, silts, muds, and clays that flow through our rivers and have built the land here in coastal Louisiana over time. We've talked about that in the past, but some quick facts about sediment. Is there going to be a test? <laughs> well, there is a quiz. So <laughs> 348 million tons of sediment have flown past gauges on the Mississippi River in Belle Chase, Louisiana, um, since 2014. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of that sediment is flowing right past the wetlands that need it and out into the outer, outer continental shelf. So we're going to talk about that, but also more about from a global scale, like what, what the importance of sediment. But if you want to kind of quantify or guess what uh, kind of quantity of sediment is flowing past the river, we have a fun quiz set up. You can go to MississippiRiverDelta.org slash challenge and guess how many sacks of crawfish, Mardi Gras floats, or river <laughs> boats. Um, that you've equals... always wanted to know, Yeah, right? exactly. We were at a, uh, we had some congressional staffers come down in April and, and we had them on a, on a trip. And so the CPRA was with us and they were trying to tell the staffers how much sediment that was. And they were trying to relate it to them. And um, and they threw it over to Bryn Haas, who was the, a previous guest of our show. They're like, Bryn, um, how many Superdomes would that fill? And Bryn just deadpans. He goes, a million. Wow. <laughs> but it was it was just kind of funny. But that, that does make it visual, you know, and it makes it, un, you know, relatable to people. It's so hard as to silly, quantify yeah, millions of tons. As silly as it sounds, yeah. uh, Alicia Renfro did some tight math behind yeah, there, Yeah, she too, did. But. She did. So go check it out. I'm very excited to have our first guest on the show um, with us is Jim Robbins. And Jim has written for the New York Times for more than 35 years. He's also written numerous mag- for ma- magazines, including Audubon, Condé Nast Traveler, Smithsonian, Scientific American, Vanity Fair, The Sunday Times, and Conservation. He has covered environmental and science stories across the United States and around the globe. Uh, And he is the author of many books, including The Man Who Planted Trees, A Story of Lost Groves, The Science of Trees, and A Plan to Save the Planet, as well as Last Refuge, The Environmental Showdown in the American West, as well as A Symphony in the Brain, um, The Evolution of the New Brain Wave Biofeedback. His most recent book we're going to talk about today, which I'm especially excited about as an Audubon uh, employee, is The Wonder of Birds, what what they tell us about ourselves, the world, and a better future. Um, but before we get to that, we want to talk about an article he wrote um, for Yale Environment 360 about sediment. So welcome to the show, Jim. Thank you so much for being on. From Montana to Louisiana, huh, Jim? Yeah, right. Well, I'm in Helena, Montana, and we have our own... Uh 
alert going on here. We have wildfires all over ah. the state, including one that just blew up right outside of town here, and people are keeping a, a watch on that. Yeah, we were on. A, I was on a panel one time, and we were with some some wildfire folks, and and it's amazing how much damage that can cause as well. It's just something so unfamiliar to us because mm-hmm. uh, we, you know, those fires would get put out really quickly. But welcome to the show, Jim. Yeah, and it's interesting because fire is one of those things we've always thought uh, we we didn't want it. We put it out of mind. It's just like sediment. We didn't want it. It stayed behind the dams, and now we're realizing that both sediment and fire are important for the ecosystem. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, I, I think studies about what happens to the land after those fires, and um, of course, you know, we're we're hoping everyone is safe. I remember when I was in California. You know, in the Bay Area, that was a huge, a huge problem, and um, it, it seems to be getting worse. But, but Jim, I want to talk to you a little bit about your story that you wrote, um, your article for Yale Environment 360, why the world's rivers are losing sediment and why it matters. Um, what made you want to take on the issue of sediment? Well, uh, it, it's one of those things you hear about, and it's kind of an aha moment. You know, I, uh, I was talking to someone, a scientist, about dams, and uh, one of my areas that I've covered quite a bit is... Uh, kind of changes we've made and how we're finding out now, just now, we made the changes 50 or 100 years ago, we're finding out now how, how much it's really cost us in terms of, of uh, uh, changes to the, uh, to the ecosystems. And when he t- told me that uh, the sediment that we always thought clogged up rivers and, and streams and um, caused problems in, in marshes and swamps, were, were critical, like minerals and nutrients to ecosystems. And it, it, like, it's one of those things that kind of, kind of you turn and you think, wow, I've always thought it was a bad thing to have sediment. Now I'm, I'm told it's, it's vital and important for climate change to have sediment in these, in these river systems. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Why, what is the importance of sediment? I mean, obviously we know in Louisiana we need it for land building, right, and to kind of help sustain wetlands that are rapidly disappearing. But in terms of um, elsewhere around the world, what, why is sediment so valuable? It's a, it's a building material for ecosystems, essentially. Um, the, I think there were two dams, uh, kind of like the, the ultimate case for this, or the test case for this, were the Elwha and Glines dams on the um, Elwha River up near, uh, 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 in northwestern Washington state. They took the dams out, and they realized that there were probably about 24 million cubic yards of sediment behind these dams, enough, according to the scientists, to fill the Seattle Seahawks football stadium eight times. Uh, I've only been there once, and I don't remember how big it was, but, you know, eight times in any football stadium is a lot of sediment. And when they took these dams out gradually, this sediment rushed downstream, and what it did is it rebuilt a lot of the the landforms on the coast. It, It created new beaches offshore, it created a brand new wetland complex because this sediment is important for as sea levels rise, building up these these important uh, ecosystems off the coast that buffer buffer um, sea level rise. They buffer wave action. Um, without them, without this ability to build, then we've got nothing out there to, to kind of keep the sea at bay, and it will only eat up more more land as sea levels rise. Right. And I mean, obviously, we know the issue here in Louisiana um, in terms of sediment loss. A lot of it has to do with the levying and channelization of the Mississippi River and keeping it in place. So a lot of that sediment goes off offshore before beyond where it can do any any good. What are some of the challenges with sediment? I mean, you mentioned in the world's rivers, um, we're losing it. So why, you know, why are we losing sediment elsewhere? 
Well, the big thing is dams. Um, we have 57,000 large dams in the world and, and countless small ones. So these dams all have, have this uh, tons, billions, if not trillions of tons of sediment stored behind them. And uh, that's the main reason why this sediment is stuck, essentially, in these river systems. And so there's a number of different efforts to try and free this imprisoned sediment, uh, to pump it out or to move it out with trucks. But the, but the best way seems to be to take down dams. And so there's a lot of places where small dams and some places where large dams are coming down where this sediment is being restored to the riverine ecosystem so the river can build up its, its, natural, um, its natural attributes to help protect against these rising sea levels. Right, and I'm sure, as you know, um, here in Louisiana, we're working, you know, to construct with uh, our state coastal agency and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers some sediment diversions that would strategically place um, gates in the Mississippi River levees to deliver that sediment out to our wetlands um, and, and capture a lot of that opportunity that's missed. Yeah, this has been a great discussion. Uh, we do have to go to break, Jim. If you hold on with us just through the break, we'll, we'll ask you a few more questions. We want to talk about your book as well. Yep, you're listening to Delta Dispatches, and we'll be back right after this short break. Hi, I'm Don Cheadle. Listen up. I want to talk to you about something important, the Environmental Defense Fund. EDF isn't like some of the other environmental groups. EDF works together with those on both sides of the issue. Despite all the fighting in Washington, EDF has found ways for both parties to support real progress. That has made our air and water cleaner and the products in our homes safer. So not only can our planet prosper, so can our future. Go to edf.org to see how you can help. National Wildlife Federation gives voices to the wildlife conservation values that are part of our country's heritage. We are charting a new course for wildlife that our children and grandchildren will thank us for. Visit our website, nwf.org Louisiana, to find out more about our work to restore and protect coastal Louisiana for generations to come. National Wildlife Federation, uniting all Americans to ensure wildlife thrive in a rapidly changing world. nwf.org Louisiana. At Audubon, we believe that where birds thrive, people prosper. Nowhere is that more evident than in Louisiana. Integrating science, education, and policy, Audubon, Louisiana's mission is to conserve and restore natural ecosystems, focusing on birds, other wildlife, and their habitats for the benefit of humanity and the Earth's biological diversity. Visit la.audubon.org to learn more and support our mission. la.audubon.org. Welcome back. We're back. Uh, you're listening to Delta Dispatches, and we're here with Jim Robbins, who is a, an author and um, reporter. Um, we were talking to you before the break about your article about sediment and the importance of sediment, which is you know clearly a huge issue here in Louisiana, but it's a big issue around um, around the world as well. You know, I want to talk about your book, but first, tell us a little bit about um, you know DredgeFest, the Dredge Research Collaborative. It seems to be there's this uh, you know growing mindset and effort to capture sediment and um you know really or release it release right? <laughs> it yeah as the as the resource that it is yeah the dredge fest is a kind of a tongue-in-cheek name for a group of scientists and other people managers and and uh, government officials and so on who get together and what they're trying to do with it is to shift the way we think about 
uh, uh, sediment. You know, it, just as when I came into the the story, I, I still thought sediment was a, a problem that clogged up rivers and marshes and swamps and so on. And so, what they're trying to do is turn people around and say, well, at some point, sometimes sediment is a problem, but most of the time, it's a very important part of the ecosystem. It needs to be understood and used. And we need to raise awareness about that. So dredge fest is a way to raise awareness about the importance of this mineral, these minerals and sediment that can be used to buffer the coastline against climate change. Um, they want to think about something called a sediment shed, just like a watershed, mm. and how important it is. And, and we need to use it and think of it in the same way. I like when smart people get together and do things like that. <laughs> yeah. It's good to hear, yeah, the innovation, innovative side of things. You know, we often hear the negative, so it's good to see solutions being implemented. Um, well, I want to shift a little bit to your your recent book. Um, you know, as an Audubon employee, I know a lot of my um, colleagues are probably really jealous that I get to talk to you about it. But um, your book is The Wonder of Birds, What They Tell Us About Ourselves, the World, and a Better Future. Um, and I just want to read a little excerpt from a Wall Street Journal um, review that says it's a must read conveying much necessary information in easily accessible form and awakening one's consciousness to what might otherwise be taken for granted. The Wonder of Birds reads like the story of a kid let loose in a candy store and given free reign to sample. That is one of the strengths. The con- convert's view gives wide appeal to those who might never have known birds well. So I think that's a, a yeah, really that's- amazing review. and. Um, definitely get out and, and get a copy of the book. But I want to ask you, Jim, so at Audubon, one of our, our uh, you know, founding uh, beliefs is that where birds thrive, people prosper. Did you find a similar correlation in writing this book? Yes, I couldn't agree more. I mean, birds are unique in that way, is that they're everywhere. And, uh, I mean, they're in my front yard, and they're your front yard, and they're on our roofs and so on, and there's no other animal that has that kind of ubiquity in the world. And uh, the more birds uh, we can kind of create habitat for, uh, it's an indicator species for how well the natural world is doing. And so uh, it's, it's unique that way, and it's a symbol of how successful we are. Uh, there's something we use birds for, it's called a sentinel species. And I know a guy in Missoula, a researcher who counts the number of blackback woodpeckers. And the more blackback woodpeckers there are, means that there's been more forest fires because they feed only in in um, in burned timber. And burned timber, burned forest, is a nursery f- for biodiversity. <laughs> so the more blackback woodpeckers there are, the better biodiversity is doing. And that's all he needs to know is how many blackback woodpeckers there are. He goes all over the West counting them. Numbers are up. Things are good. Numbers are down. Oh, we, we need to start paying attention to our, our lack of biodiversity. So... Uh- I love that thought that birds are everywhere, right? And almost every, you know, you cities there are birds, and in the country there are birds, and, and apparently in burned forests, yeah. that's a that's a good place for birds. That's an interesting way to think of that. Yeah, and, you know, that's a, a huge motivator for the work that we do here at Audubon um, in Louisiana for, you know, preserving and restoring critical bird habitat. I mean, 100 million um, birds, migratory birds, use coastal Louisiana and the Mississippi River Delta for nesting, migration, stopover habitat. So, um, you know, our efforts here are crucial there. Um, so in terms of, I know you talk a lot about the relationship between humans and birds. What are some of the most important things that we have and or can learn from, from our feathered friends? Well, there's a whole range of things. I think one of the most important, I mean, everything from, uh, for example, there's a chapter on how we learn about dinosaurs uh, from birds because we can look at them and kind of go back and look at some of the fossils 
and when birds, when dinosaurs first started to fly, and, and so birds, which are the dinosaurs that made it, according to one scientist, really give us a window back into into what the dinosaurs were like, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago. Um, we look at bird brains, we study them, because they're similar in many ways to human brains, and so there are people who take apart bird brains to understand <laughs> better the workings of human brains. Uh, there are a lot of people who study um, birdsong, because it's very similar to how uh, birds, how birds learn to sing is very similar to how humans learn to talk. And I spoke with one scientist who believes because he's pulled apart this system in birds, he can, he can uh, teach birds that, like a pigeon, that don't, aren't able to sing, he can inject them and change the, the brain in order to create a song pathway. They have the right pipes, but they don't, which is called a syrinx, but they don't, uh, they don't have the right software in the brain, and he thinks using these injections that um, he can teach a pigeon to sing. Wow. It's pretty far, far out, but yeah. it may someday lead to um, uh, drugs or therapy for people who aren't able to speak and to, or who have speech problems. And so there's lots of things like that. On the other end of the, the scale, birds are, are transcendent. People, many people who go bird watching or who raise birds or spend time with birds see them as a way to kind of lift their spirits, and we all know that, especially the Audubon Society. <laughs> so I kind of, I kind of uh, tunneled into that quite a bit and wrote about a, a culture of, of falconers in Washington, inner city Washington, D.C., who use birds to uh, kind of come out of their uh, the difficulties that they were raised in, and now there's a cadre of of young of youthful offenders, youthful violent offenders in Washington D.C. who have, are learning how to work and to rehabilitate falcons and other birds uh, as part of their kind of um, ability to make something more out of their lives than they've been able to so far. Yeah, I mean, we actually had an example of that recently, where our executive director Karen Profita um, purchased some Audubon sells these kind of stuffed. Um, animals, stuffed birds, but they have the actual bird song or bird call uh-huh. that you can, you know, um, squeeze them and it plays. And so we sent some to, um, you know, a hospital where there were some Alzheimer patients and just them interacting with the, the stuffed animals and hearing the bird songs, you know, the, the, the physicians there and the nurses said it really just like lifted their spirits and kind of, you know, inspired them. So there's so many great examples like that. I have to ask you, well, I have two questions, and we're almost out of time, but what was the most surprising thing you learned about birds in writing the book? Uh, how they're, well, one of the most, I mean, there's lots of surprising things I learned about birds in writing this book, but I think one of the, the one of the most surprising is how they are conflated with angels throughout history. People saw birds as angelic beings, and many cultures, many indigenous cultures, see birds as connections to the divine. And uh, it's it's universal, and I think that that's very interesting. I'd like to know more. Yeah, dove, right? I mean, yeah. that's kind of a, a global symbol. Um, so I get to ask the last question. I'm gonna jump in on on Jacques just because um, we do like to ask a fun question uh, of all of our guests. So, Jim, what is your favorite bird? Well, it's hard to say, (laughs) but actually the one I've seen, the bird that I would like to spend more time with and learn more about because it's so darn beautiful, is the Aplomato falcon, which is from uh, South America, 
and uh, I met a fellow who uses them to keep birds from eating grapes in, uh, <laughs> in the wine country of Napa, and they chase off the starlings, and they are so beautiful. Google it, check it a out. A protective bird. I like yeah. that, like a watchdog, right? <laughs> I have to say, I'm impressed that you actually answered that question. Yeah. Our director of bird conservation, Eric Johnson, we've had him on and asked, and he says, whatever bird I'm looking at, which I think is yeah. a little bit of a cop-out. <laughs> yeah, and well, Dave... I equivocated, but I did pick one that leads the pack. <laughs> <laughs> you gave us some information. Uh, one time, David Muth also, too, we, we teased him and we told him not a bird that you could eat. And he, he was like, you know, yeah. I wouldn't eat them. No, no, yeah. no. <laughs> well, Jim, again, thank you so much for being on so the show. Where can we find more information? Yeah, well, you know, so your book is The Wonder of Birds, what they tell us about ourselves, the world, and a better future. Um, any, you know, favorite places where people can go to, to purchase the book? Uh, independent bookstores. Okay. Yeah, yeah we love our local bookstores. Um, and definitely go check out a copy, um, The Wonder of Birds, What They Tell Us About Ourselves, The World, and a Better Future um, by Jim Robbins. And Jim, you know, we'll continue to follow your reporting on, you know, uh, these environmental issues. Clearly, um, you know, what we're dealing with here in Louisiana is happening, not maybe not in the same form, but, you know, other challenges, environmental challenges around the world. And I know you've been covering these issues for a long time. So I um, highly recommend checking out your reporting. And thank you so much for being on the yeah. show. We really appreciate Best it. Best wishes to you in Montana, too, Jim. All right. Thanks, you guys. Take care. We'll be back with Delta Dispatches after the break. Hello, we're back, um, and you're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and we are excited to have a repeat guest repeat. on the show. Uh, it's good to be back. It's good <laughs> to be back. So, Dupree is unavailable. My, my my dog, Dupree, is unavailable. He he is, as I said before, he is running for mayor. He's qualified. He's he's highly qualified, <laughs> and he is running on a on a pro-cat and pro-flood Flood control. A bipet. Uh, a bipet. A bipet. Bi- bi- yes, exactly. <laughs> a bipet. He's got. He's got his. His running mate is an orange tabby. So. Uh, what is his position on potholes? <laughs> <laughs> well, his dad's position. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, let's ask who his dad is. Let's introduce his dad. Yeah. Go ahead. Hi, my, my name is uh, Alex Kolker, and I'm an associate professor at the Louisiana University's Marine Consortium down in Cocodree. And a repeat guest. Yes. yes. So we're glad yes. to yes. have you back. Yeah. Um, so last week, I had the exciting week. Um, Jacques held down the fort, but this week, Jacques had the exciting week, and you were part of it. We, we were down in the field. We were down in the Cubits Gap Subdelta, which is one of, I have to say, it's one of the most beautiful parts of the system that we that we work in. It's, it's about 25 miles southeast of Venice, and it's an area where the river has, on, almost on its own, uh, cut, basically it functions like a diversion, right? So it's a kind of an interesting area. There was a crevasse basically a hole in the river levee that developed in the early mid 19th century. Um, and that, uh, that crevasse basically functioned like a diversion and created this huge fan shaped Delta that, um, over the course of, of almost, a, of almost a century. Yeah. And it, I mean, it was a, a wonderful day. It was Tuesday. We went out of Venice and I just say like being on a boat and then being on the Mississippi river, and you're, you know, seeing these tankers go by and then all of a sudden you're almost at Pilot Town. And then before that, you're in, in Cubits Gap and seeing the land that was built was just incredible. Really interesting history that we were talking yeah, about right before the break. <laughs> so give us a quick cool. little. So, yeah. so, so my understanding is that the crevasse was cut by the daughters of Mr. Cubit. 
And, and, and I told Jacques, I was like, I that, have two sisters. I'm so glad my dad never made us go <laughs> right? You know, he made us cut the grass every now and then. But <laughs> my, my grandfather made us fix fences just so we would know how to know how to work. <laughs> but, 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 they, but, there, but, and I, and that's, that's the story. Someone else was saying maybe it was the Navy, but as far as I like, understand. Uh, associated with the war. Navy, yeah, 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 but I, I don't know. I think know. the daughter's story is way more I, I think that's a better story. And, and at the end of the day, I'm a scientist and I'm not, I'm yeah. not a historian. <laughs> well, so, but, 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 but the interesting thing thing is this small crevasse functions like a diversion it it widened and it carries i don't know between 50 and 100,000 cubic feet per second of fresh water which is considerable yeah absolutely and and it's about so it's about the size of the large diversion it's about the size of the mid of the mid breton diversion right the mid or the mid barataria the mid barataria for diversions 75,000 cfs this is between 50 and 100,000 cfs so Pretty close, and so it makes up, you know, as a study site, it makes a better study site than, let's say, Carnarvon or yeah. Davis Pond. So just for comparison, like a Carnarvon and Davis Pond are 10, 12,000 they, They're 10,000 or, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, or so max, yeah. but often they're run at a whole lot less. Davis Pond is like on average, uh, the base flow is about 1,000. Right. Maybe it gets up to four or five every now and then when so they post it. So a hundred times that. So yeah, fifty yeah. to a hundred times that. So a much, much, much bigger. Well, and one of the cool things about it, right, is that what it's done. So we were there in the Delta National Wildlife Refuge, which is this huge expanse of land in the in the kind of Bird's Foot Delta area um, that was built by opening the river and the crevasse and depositing sediment. So tell us a little bit about the land that yeah, was has been built yeah, by the so, crevasse. So okay, so the land the land that's built it's it's a it's fresh mar it's fresh and Fresh and somewhat intermediate marshes, um, right? So it's mostly fresh marshes close to the river. And then as you move away, the, the system gets gets saltier. Uh, there is a lot of rosocane out there. And then uh, there's also a lot of crevasses in there, a lot of small small cuts that are basically like like mini diversions uh, in there. And those areas have American, uh, American water lotus. They've got uh, arrowheads. There's beautiful birds. So there's some of, birds, birds, some, of, shock, huh? some of my favorite birds. Because of Some of my favorite birds, which are the which are the magnificent frigate birds, which are one of my favorites. Man, uh, y'all know y'all birds around yeah. here. I'm super impressed. So it's a cool, it's a beautiful area. And then you know there was kind of this this interesting scientific mystery because some areas where we looked at it, and some areas are building land, and and some areas are 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 losing land. And we thought this actually was a really cool spot to look at to test some of the hypotheses about why and how diversions build land, right? Because I'm a scientist, and as scientists, we like to put ideas to the test, right? That That's one of the things that science is great at doing. And there were some controversies, particularly post-Katrina, about whether or not diversions could build land, right? And and some people looked at the area around Carnarvon and said, you know, there was there was a lot of land loss around Carnarvon um, after the after after Katrina, and some people looked at that and said, "Well, it was the freshwater marshes that the that was built that were built by Carnarvon that made them really un, structurally unstable, and that salt marshes were were more stable." We kind of took a we sort of looked we you know we thought well Carnarvon like I said it's not the best example right because right. it's because it's relatively small, so we thought maybe Cubit's Gap is a better place to test these hypotheses these ideas. Um, so is myself and another guy from Tulane, Rita Mayer, who's a great geospatial kind of does geospatial analyses, which is kind of like Google Earth on steroids, kind of things like that. <laughs> Good um, analogy. <laughs> yeah. And he looked, 
at um, he looked he looked at at, at that area, uh, and then also a student, Annalise Muscato, who's over there, who's at two, who was a grad student at Tulane, and we looked at that area and we um, we mapped out the areas that were building land and the areas that were that were losing land, and then we tried to relate that looking at the properties of the sediments and were at and what were the properties of the sediments in the areas that were gaining land and the areas that were building land. And it turned out that I'm like on the edge of my seat. Yeah. I want to hear what he has to say. <laughs> so and it turned out that the areas that were building land were the areas that were closest to the river. Those were the areas that had the most mineral sediments. Those sediments were the strongest structurally. And they were the freshest sediments. And the areas furthest away from the river, the ones out close to the ocean, close to, close to you know, Breton Sound and, and that side over there, those were the marshes that were losing land, that were most prone to erosion. Those were the marshes that were the most organic. They were furthest from the river, so they didn't have much of a sediment source. And, and actually, those were kind of salty, too. Mm-hmm. So we think that the issue is not a freshwater versus saltwater thing, or at least not much of one. The real, the big point is whether or not the marshes have a lot of sediment, and the sediment provides the structural stability. So the base, the mineral, of what, yeah, right, the base of the minimum, mm-hmm. the base of of it, which is you know the sediment that we're talking about is it's basically ground up rock, mm-hmm. right? And so the marshes that are comprised of sediment are really tough pieces of of ground up of ground up rock. We, we actually tried to take a core out there, and in some places it was really tough. You, yeah, you jumped, I was going to say that. I was gonna say that was one of the coolest parts of the trip. You know, we pulled our boats up to some of the new land that had been built over the last decade. People got out and were walking. It was really solid. And then Alex tried to shove the sediment core in there, and you really had to like power. I think we had to get more people to yeah. kind of like yeah. get it in there, get it in the land, because it's not just about right the the kind of the acreage or how much Big, land is built, but right. it's like how deep it is, right? It, and, right, it's right. And the foundation. So yeah, it's all of the properties of the found. Exactly, it's the properties of the foundation. And the, these marshes had a solid foundation because they were made out of, you know, mineral sediments. And so that means that they were they were tough and they were relatively resistant to to erosion. And and during a period that had a bunch of storms, during a period that had Katrina and Rita and Isaac. These areas basically basically maintained their place, and actually, in some cases, these marshes were actually developing during a period that had intense storms. Right, and so going back to you know what we were discussing earlier with Carnarvon, I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of discussion around that and why the areas in Breton Sound, kind of south of Carnarvon, lost so much land after Katrina. I mean, one, it was Katrina; it was a massive storm, right. but then two, I mean, it, there was not a lot of sediment in that system because Carnarvon's small. And, it was, and it's not intended it's to build, not right? intended and it's actually operated pretty infrequently so when we're looking at diversions like the mid barataria sediment diversion that can carry a lot of sediment into that basin that's what you need to kind of as the building blocks for a strong foundation right that the, it's the, it's those tough mineral sediments that are the key to building to building strong land in down here down here in the delta so yeah the organ the organic fresh the organic marshes that are just you know peat are um are really not nearly as stable. So we have a lot more to talk about with the uh, the mayor uh, candidate for mayor's campaign manager. I'm, I'm his campaign <laughs> manager and his bodyguard. And his bodyguard, right. Uh, so we want to come back with Alex, and we have a lot more to talk about, some media that followed your trip and some really great supporting uh, pieces. So uh, we'll be back with Delta Dispatches, WGSO 990 after the break. 
Welcome back to Delta Dispatches. I'm Jacques Hebert with Audubon, Louisiana. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore Retreat. Who I don't have my headphones on, so I can't hear the music. So all of a sudden, Jacques was at attention at the microphone. So <laughs> Alex and I are just chit-chatting away what? over here. <laughs> so Alex, let's talk about your paper, um, Remote Sensing of Environment, uh, Propensity for Erosion and Deposition in a Deltaic Wetland Complex. Implications for River Management and Coastal Restoration. Right, It's an academic paper, and academics like lots of words and big words. <laughs> so let's let's break it down. Let's talk about That's why we wanted that, to take right, the media yeah, out so, there, right? Yeah, so we brought people out because actually I think that as a scientist, I really think it's important that people in the public understand the, the work that we're doing. So I, I agree. was really, really glad that, that folks from the media were, were out there with us on on, uh, on Tuesday. And we tried, what we did when we were out there, we we tried to show them areas where land was being built and where land was, was eroding. And right next to each other almost, well, right? Well, about, it, or about, about 10 miles apart okay. from each other. So not exactly right next to each other, but about 10 miles apart mm-hmm. from each other. Um, and we wanted to show them the properties of the sediment. So we went out and we went into an area where land was building. We took a core, and that's the area that had the really tough mineral sediments that I was talking to you about. And then we went out to the very far edge of the delta where it was ero- where 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 the, the delta's eroding. And the sediment out there was almost like a coffee grounds. Coffee grounds. That was one of the coolest yeah. things, too. Yeah. Seeing that, and you're like, wow, that it really, really looks like a whole bunch of coffee grounds that are. Yeah. So, why it, is that? Why is it's it like almost that? like, yeah, it's, that's basically the ground up eroding marsh. And that's all the kind of ground it's up unhealthy, organic. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's all the ground up eroding marsh that's actually gotten reworked and almost was forming a little bit like a beach, mm-hmm. but like a beach of a beach of decaying marsh. Beach of badness. Beach, a beach of, yeah. <laughs> So, so. Sounds like a drink. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll get aside. That that's interesting because we heard that coffee ground. We've heard that analogy before, and and what that means. But it, from yeah, the I mean, it's almost, side. yeah, it's almost it's almost like a kind of a sediment type. I mean, it's not. I don't think we formally call it you know coffee grounds, but it's uh, it's almost we do kind of think of sediments as having you know certain types and certain properties, and that's kind of a common word for one common type of sediment, and it's often a type of sediment that's associated with degrading and dying marshes so we did uh we did an exercise at alumcom we do it often uh through louisiana sea grant they have a training program where they train young scientists on how to deal with the media mm-hmm. and one of the things uh they they asked me a couple times to participate Jacques has done it as well but what they try to do is is how can you make your work relatable to the media and and i think what y'all did this week is an excellent way and an excellent example of you know your work is great, um, but you have to be able to to be able to relate that and and have people understand how that fits into everyday life. And so- yeah, and for for me, you know, down at Lumcon, I feel like part of our job at Lumcon is to help people understand the coast mm-hmm. and help people understand how our complex but fascinating and beautiful coast works. And and a lot of my colleagues do it, and we all kind of do it, and we all kind of do it in different ways that relates to our, that relate to our specialty. And being myself being so interested in in sediments and coastal restoration, I try to do it in in this way. And I really want people to understand what our coast looks like, where. And you might think that mud is boring, but it's actually fascinating. And it's fascinating for a lot of people. Yeah, it's fascinating for a lot of people. And it's what so much of the system is built on. And so if we want to understand how the system works, we have to understand the basic, the, the foundation, the building blocks of it. So, I, you know, I want people to understand there's some mud that's that's really actually really tough 
and very, very structurally solid and you can stand on it. And there's some things that you might look at and think of as mud and they are so soft, you're going to sink right through. Yeah, so, I remember the, that as a talking point from your trips this week, a couple of tweets, and it, it was, you said that this is solid, you know, and, and that that's yeah. that's what people maybe see, um, but they don't, they can't match the science behind it, so mm-hmm. you helped to do that. Right, but, and we wanted to say, like, the science behind the solid mud is that it has, is that it has river sediments, and it's close to the river, and so areas that receive lots of river sediments, big pipeline for sediments, and one of those, one of those pathways for sediments is a river diversion. You want to have a river diversion that is big enough and uh, carries enough water and often that's deep enough, that's the right size and right shape to carry a whole lot of sediment. And that is sort of in the, that's sort of the implication of the work. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think, I mean, that was one of the things that was really fascinating on Tuesday is just, I mean, with diversions, you're not just kind of influencing the area that's directly in the outfall area of the diversion, but you're introducing sediment into the system that can be distributed throughout, right? right. And we went to that little crevasse right. or and ditch and you just saw like beautiful, like, you know, vegetation and, and it was just incredible to yeah. see that. And, and, you know, these, these, you know, these developing deltas, have almost this lace work of channels. They're they're really quite beautiful. If you ever, you know, someone could just go to Google Earth and look at the area, go to Venice, Louisiana, and then look southeast about 20 miles, and they'll see this big fan-shaped deposit. And there's almost like this lace work of it's almost a maze of of channels that are that's you know they they come out in a fan, but they split and then they and then they coalesce and then they split and they coalesce. It's a beautiful intricate intricate pattern but that intricate pattern is the pathway for sediments to get deep into a system and those channels one of my colleagues Giannis George you from UNO is has shown that those channels are are really highly efficient they're really good at carrying water and sediment and so those channels have a have an ability to carry sediment further than you might think and that having Having that network of channels is is crucial to having a an, a, an operating and functioning diversion. That water has a mind of its own, yeah. right? Yes, and, 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 and if it has a mind of its own, but we can also work with that mind of its own to help us restore the coast. Yeah, right? and that's something I've, I mean, I've learned, you know, doing flyovers and, and with Alicia Renfro, who's one of our staff scientists, anytime there's a straight line, that's not natural, <laughs> not, not right? Natural. Like <laughs> the natural stuff is like a fan or kind of irregular patterns and that sort of thing, but that's how it works and that's how it functions and kind of sustains itself. Yeah, so we are so happy to have you with us today. Tell us another interesting story. You can have to be a regular it, it, with us. It, it, it's a pleasure. I, I, I will come back anytime. So. <laughs> Alex, thank you so much. I mean, I know you've written blog posts and you've been on our show. And so, I, but you have Twitter, yes? I, I, I do have Twitter, so you can, you can follow me on Twitter, and I, I will po- I post up there. Yay. So <laughs> what's, your, what's your handle? Alex S. Kolker. Oh, great. Alex follow very, very simple. Very Alex simple. S. Kolker. Um, and thank you again for all of the support that you've given and really trying to make this science relatable and engaging and, and get people to care about hey, and, this and, and issue. Th- thank you, and, and thanks to the, to the folks at the MRG campaign for all the hard work that they're doing. Yeah, um, you're an you're easy one to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jacques, we were just uh, just kind of mentioning, but we do have an action alert related to sediment diversions. We do, I mean, speaking of sediment diversions, um, the Army Corps of Engineers is still taking comments, um, scoping comments for their draft, for their scoping report that will inform the draft environmental impact statement just a couple more weeks right? yeah september, september 5th. 5th is the last day so you can go online mississippi river delta.org 
slash take action and give your comments. Um, you know, let the core know how important this project is to Louisiana. And you can find previous episodes of Delta Dispatches, which Alex was on with us and other previous guests like Dr. Renfro at deltadispatches.org. That's correct. Anything going on next week? You know, I think we have to figure out what we're doing next week. We had a good schedule for August, and now we're nearing the end of August, so it's time to plan for September. (laughs) Well, we want to make sure, again, that everybody stays safe. Um, Again, uh, don't panic, but be prepared. Getagameplan.org. Getagameplan.org. And uh, so hopefully uh, everybody will be safe, and we'll be tuning in next week with us. And yeah, and you can, I mean, definitely, obviously, follow your local media, but National Weather Service. Um, Alex Krautman, remember we had him yes, on yes. to talk about. Um, so wait, we didn't even talk. Did, how'd your audition go? <laughs> Simona, is a long, go, it's a long to... process. Uh, she's referencing for this. You're just tuning in to the, my six ten stompers audition. Yes. Uh, I had another event done. last yeah, night, yeah. so I'm hoping in, maybe next episode I'll have some news. Yes. But we'll see. Breaking Either way, news. thank you, news. Alex. <laughs> Either way, it's been a lot of fun. So uh, yeah, it's it's a great process. They're a great organization. They donate a ton of money to charity, you know, and they'll, they'll go to like children's hospitals and all kind of things like that. So they're yeah, a, a, like we were talking about last week, just very iconic New Orleans. It just would with past couple of years, but they really do. They have a good time for a good cause. And, and that's certainly great to know. Yeah. So what do you have going on this weekend? Someone are you going to Louisiana? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not on our not radar. On uh, not on Ben and Penny's radar. Okay. No, <laughs> uh, I guess we'll monitor the weather. We have yeah. a couple of outdoor activities. And so uh, we'll just monitor that and make sure hopefully the rain will uh, hold back a little bit. It sounds like most of it will come next week. Yeah, we're going to have to stay vigilant and stay on top of the news and and really just hope for the best. I mean, we're in the thick of hurricane season right now, so it's that time of year. It's that time of August, right? That always hits us this week. Today's the anniversary of Hurricane Andrew, I think. I I forget how many years. 2025? 2025, I think. 25, yeah. 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 We were joking. I remember... uh, my family evacuated to a hotel in New Orleans for Andrew because obviously that was a good idea at the yes. time. But yes, the clearly- A-Bears, the A-Bears have a different plan now, right? <laughs> yeah, now we know uh, to really get out. So <laughs> don't don't follow my advice. Go to getagameplan.org and, and plan a real evacuation route. Well, thank you everybody for being with us uh, again on Delta Dispatches this week. We'll listen to hopefully you'll listen to us again next week. Thanks so much. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. All right, have a good week, everyone.